much is a human being worth? This is a question often dripping with questionable motives and with monstrous historical precedent, but it's a potentially valuable question to ask as well because of the nature of the world we live in and because of the incentives many of us experience at some point in our lives to monetize various aspects of ourselves. And the answer to that question of how much a human being is worth is highly dependent on what aspects of a person we happen to be talking about and what market forces apply to that particular valuation method. For instance, the average American, based on data from the 2015 census, will earn around $1.4 million over the course of their lifetime. At different points in their life, their net worth that is, the amount of money everything they own is worth, including the actual money in their pockets and in the bank, but also their car, their computer, their other valuables, all of that minus the value of everything that they owe, like debt, car payments, and so on. Their net worth will vary depending on countless factors, but in general, the average American's net worth starts at around $11,000 for adults under 35, and then balloons up to closer to $60,000 for 35 to 44-year-olds. It then more than doubles to 124000 at 45 to 54 years old, and increases a bit to just over $187,000 at 55 to 64, and then hangs on at the low to mid $200,000 range in their mid-60s through their 70s. You could, then, look at a person's age and where they live and have a rough idea of how much they're worth in terms of their assets and liabilities based on those numbers. You could get even more granular by looking at their actual bank account and possessions, their debts and liabilities, if you wanted to chart out precisely how many dollars and cents a person represents in the economy in which they operate. You could also attempt to measure a person's popularity or influence and then slap a number on that, a wildly imperfect but illustrative stand-in for popularity in the online world might be the number of followers a person has on a given social network. And because of what's often called influencer marketing, we have some general pricing data when it comes to putting a numerical value on that. Broadly, you can expect to pay about $100 for every 10,000 followers a particular influencer, someone with a lot of followers usually, but potentially also someone with a lot of reputational heft within a particular even small community. And that means if you're wanting someone with 50,000 followers to share a sponsored Instagram post featuring your product or message, you can expect to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 on average to make that happen. What if we take the question more literally, though? What if you were to, for instance, carve a person up and sell the pieces? Well, the black market for body parts is often called the red market, and red market prices vary substantially from the mainstream legal pricing on organs, skin, hair, and all the other organic bits and bobs that make up a human being. According to a book called The Red Market by an investigative journalist named Scott Carney, a kidney sold illegally in the United States can go for around $262,000. A liver 
can go for $157,000. A heart can go for $119,000, which is a crazy low price, all things considered, since a legally obtained heart can cost closer to $1 million. A pair of eyes is about $1,500. A gallbladder is about $1,200. And a skull with all of the teeth is about the same. A stomach will only net you around $500, and a pint of blood will get you around $340. Though you can get that same pint in India if you are on the buying end and wanting to save some money for about $25. And the pricing here on most of these parts varies immensely based on where you're located. That kidney that you obtained for $262,000 in the United States could have been had for only $62,000 in China and a mere $15,000 in India. But, like I mentioned, these are all red market prices, meaning that they are all on the more shadowy side of the law, and as such will involve a decent amount of risk wherever you're attempting to acquire them. One of the higher netting pieces of human that one can sell in this way is one's eggs, if one happens to be a woman, which can earn you around $12,500 per harvest. But the real winner here, the real vein of gold in the human body, seems to be bone marrow, which can sell for $23,000 per gram, which is absolutely nuts, since the average person has around 2,600 grams of bone marrow, which is about 5.7 pounds or 4% of the human body. And if you were to sell it piece by piece, gram by gram, on the black market, the red market, that is, you could conceivably earn about $60 million, though I should note that harvesting it properly is a bigger problem than you might expect, and the same is true of many other organs and body parts, which accounts for the relatively low price of a complete human body parted out for use, which apparently adds up to just under a million dollars, around $850,000 more specifically. And the price is even lower if you were to try to sell a complete human corpse. A lot of what is there is either no longer useful when it's dead on arrival, or, like the bone marrow, it is tricky to get and to part out and sell. And as such, in practice, it often has a way lower profit margin in bulk, unrefined, despite the high street price on the purified gram. I should mention, too, that only in Iran is it legal to buy and sell organs legally out in the open. So a lot of what we know about pricing on the black market, the red market, is influenced by the price of keeping things on the down low. And the costs that come with that will almost always cut into profits substantially. Likewise, in countries where we can price out organs because they're available through particular hospital or legal systems, the cost of bureaucracy and regulations are added to the raw cost of procedures and the raw materials involved, which is why these costs can be five to ten times as high as those on the red market. There's another method of determining a person's worth that's becoming increasingly important that we should also talk about here. And it's one that, thankfully, is a lot more relevant in mainstream society than parting folks out for the value of their organs. And that method is predicated on a person's attention. Attention is kind of a fuzzy term, but it's been broken up into increasingly granular pieces over the last 50 years or so by marketers and other entities who want to snag a moment of our time, a few minutes here and there, or an hour or two of each and every day. 
corporations that want to sell us soft drinks, but also politicians who want to sell us on their platform, or religious leaders who want to sell us on their ideology. They all pay to get in front of us by slapping their message on television, on billboards, on ads all over the internet, in apps, in the newsletters and podcasts that we subscribe to. The cost to get these messages in these places varies so widely that it would be impossible to give just one number, and even an average number would be horribly misleading because the medium, the message, the audience, and countless other variables influence that figure so completely. But the cost is generally determined by either reach, which is based on the number of followers a YouTuber has on their channel, or the number of viewers a TV show gets, or on the cost per impression, or more frequently today, the cost per thousand impressions, which is determined by tracking clicks and other sorts of interactions, primarily on the internet, to see who has been exposed to a particular paid message. Or you can require even more definitive proof of advertising utility and opt to measure engagement instead, which tracks when people click a thing or comment on a thing or share a thing or otherwise engage with something on a page, which indicates to some that rather than just having something flash up on these people's screens, they are maybe noticed by that person looking at that screen. This proves that a person has indeed interacted with the message that they've been exposed to in some way. This metric has been particularly important to the success of advertising-based business models on social networks, and it has been the stomping ground of late of direct response marketing messages, like those that you sometimes hear on podcasts, which ask you to use a particular specialized web link or a promo code when you visit a website that you're being directed to. That shows the owners of that business, that website, that you arrived on their site via this particular messaging channel. Because of the preponderance of companies with revenue models based on some variation of that attention-based theme, though, we've reached an interesting point in media and even lifestyle history where many of us are having our attention cut up into pieces, and those pieces are being fought over by a huge variety of entities some of them wanting to use that attention to get advertisers to pay them for ad placements. Some want to apply our attention to their product, their service, their experience. There are some that want us to sit and passively gorge on their content, tucked away neatly inside a walled garden that we paid to access, not exposed to ads, but also not engaging with the competition, keeping our attention locked on their stuff intentionally or unintentionally, starving the competition of that increasingly precious resource, increasingly precious to us and to them. What I want to talk about today is the attention economy and how we may have finally reached a point where the finitude of this resource is forcing changes in the way some companies do business and the way some of us live our lives. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from Quartz, and it's entitled, Netflix Isn't Talking About Itself Like a Tech Company Anymore. 
This piece, on its surface, is about a recent earnings call that Netflix had with its investors. But what it's really about is the change in self-perception many companies that make many different types of things are having to engage in if they want to compete in an increasingly interconnected tech-enabled consumer landscape, which is a fairly broad thing to say, I know, so let's home in on what that means in practice, starting with that Netflix earnings call. What typically happens on these calls, in which a representative, usually someone decently high up in the food chain within a company, talks numbers with folks who are monetarily invested in that company, and who are therefore privy to such information, and who the company therefore wants to keep happy and excited so they don't pull their money and invest it elsewhere. On this call, rather than sticking to raw subscriber figures, as streaming services like Netflix are traditionally wont to do, they listed other metrics, like the follower counts of some of their in-house production stars, like the actress Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things and Katherine Lankford from 13 Reasons Why. It also touted cultural milestones, like the 80 million members who, within a very short period of time, all watched Bird Box, a Netflix-exclusive thriller starring Sandra Bullock, which compared favorably in terms of viewership with the Super Bowl here in the United States, which only brought in about 98 million viewers in 2019, way down from previous years. And while that is still quite a bit higher than the all-at-once viewership of Bird Box, which had about 45 million viewers the first week, racking up that 80 million figure within the first few months, I mean, that's still just one film which received middling reviews from viewers that is gaining comparable numbers in a very short period of time with what is supposed to be the most viewed entertainment experience in one of the most TV-consuming nations in the world. What's more, Bird Box is about two hours long, and Netflix released around 1,500 hours of original content in the United States alone in 2019. It released more movies than all major U.S. studios combined in that same period, and at least some of that work is receiving critical accolades. The Netflix-produced 2018 film Roma received gobs of nominations and many awards in several countries, which allows Netflix to claim a certain amount of prestige for the work that they're presenting, alongside the impressive bulk, the quantity of hours that they are providing to subscribers. One of the most news-making headlines derived from this February 2019 investor call, though, was the shade that Netflix threw at some of their major competitors like HBO and Hulu. This was a repetition of a comment that they made in a shareholder letter back in January, in which they indicated that they considered the video game Fortnite and platforms like YouTube to be bigger competitive concerns than HBO and Hulu and other streaming services that would seem on their face to be the most pressing existential threats that Netflix has to deal with. From that investor letter, quote, we compete with and lose to Fortnite more than HBO. When YouTube went down globally for a few minutes in October, our viewing and signups spiked for that time. Hulu is small compared to YouTube for viewing time. Our growth is based on how good our experience is compared to all the other screen time experiences from which consumers choose. End quote. So what we have here is a behemoth in the streaming space 
acknowledging that they are competing not just with other streaming services, but other companies that might take up a user's time, that might consume some of that most finite of resources any human being has, the 24 hours a day that we are each limited to. Which is kind of an interesting reframing of the world of media, but also the world of goods and services, isn't it? Think about what that means if taken to its logical conclusion. Netflix is not just competing with HBO and Hulu because it's not just competing with other services that provide passive entertainment to consumers. It's not just competing with other providers of shows and movies. It's also competing with other entertainment entities like those that provide video games, an interactive entertainment option, and those that provide platforms that allow for the consumption but also the creation, the uploading and commenting upon of media, as is the case with YouTube. Beyond that, though, we get into some really heady territory, because if Netflix is considering these activities to be comparable because they take up a user's time, time that they could otherwise be spending watching things on Netflix, it seems reasonable to assume that they are thinking in the same terms about anything that takes up our time. Any time that is not spent on their platform consuming their offerings is time that is being spent elsewhere on other things. Other things that could eventually pull people away from Netflix. And because Netflix is most stable, most safe and economically sturdy, when users perceive it as an absolute baseline subscription, something that they obviously must have, like electricity or internet access, a public utility almost, that they consider to be so fundamental that the idea of unsubscribing never crosses their minds. Because of that positioning, that desire to be so fundamental, the math for Netflix changes. It's not enough to have just an hour of your day from time to time. They need to be a part of your everyday routine, a substantial part of your rituals and rhythm. And anything else in your life that consumes more of your time than they do is a possible long-term threat to their cultural ubiquity and economic stability. You could, of course, rationally argue that I am overstating this and that the shade contained in this investor letter and investor call is just that, a dig at their actual competitors in the shape of feigned dismissiveness. That's a possibility, and either way, it's definitely a beneficial side effect for Netflix. It's a clever way of repositioning the company as something bigger than what it's always been perceived to be which is no doubt intended to help them scale up in the eyes of their investors from the expansive but still limited niche that they have always occupied and for a long while dominated. At the same time, though, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That some of these companies, these products, might be eyeing the larger world beyond their assumed industry borders, and considering that they might be better off if they compete for not just the time typically allocated to passive entertainment in a person's day, the large swaths of hours that we spend camped out in front of a screen watching medium-to-long-format professionally produced content, but also for the time that we spend playing games, watching user-created content, going to sporting events, hanging out with our families and friends, not in front of a screen, eating out at restaurants, sleeping, working, all of that time, all of those hours that we spend doing things that are not, currently at least, monetizable and owned by a company like Netflix. Looking at this another way, 
Why wouldn't they perceive those additional hours as potential gets, as opportunities, rather than resources that are forever out of their reach? Why wouldn't they perceive those hours which we, the consuming public, currently spend on reading books and listening to podcasts and having sex and learning new skills and working out at the gym and driving in our cars and chatting with friends over a glass of wine as potential future conquests, as resources currently owned by competition that do not yet realize that they are Netflix's competition? We live in a world in which a great deal of what we consume is provided to us cheap or even free. And the cost for the goods and services we acquire in this way is almost always something that we already have just as a consequence of living, our time and attention. Google provides us with immensely sophisticated and useful search tools in exchange for our attention. And that swap takes the shape of ads that they display alongside the content that we actually want to see, the stuff that we are actually searching for. Facebook and most social networks apply the same business model to our attention, and they have refined that model even more granularly and skillfully than most other players in this space, recognizing that the more data they have on us and the more specifics they can offer, the more advertisers will pay to access our attention. As a consequence, those networks become more invasive so they can make more on their end of the deal. We arguably still get a whole lot in the trade-off, but the incentives that come into play as a result of this type of relationship cause a lot of the overreaches that we have seen in terms of users' privacy being violated and our data being collected and sold, either as data sets to marketing entities or as ads, providing access to us in highly refined demographic slices to the highest bidder. This also incentivizes these companies to keep us engaged with their content as long as possible, though. To wring us dry of every minute, every second they can possibly get their hands on. Because the longer we are engaged, the longer our eyes are on those screens, looking at the pixels that they deliver to us, the more money they can make from us, from our attention. That relationship then informs the type of information, the sort of interactions that they provide us with. And over time, they've created networks that amplify certain types of relationships and communication over other types. More specifically, they amplify anything that keeps us emotionally engaged, keeps us outraged, or feeling morally superior. Anything that causes us to feel very tribal, to antagonize someone or something, to celebrate our perceived side in an argument and to dismiss or belittle the other. That stuff takes center stage because those triggers have been shown to keep our eyes and our monetizable attention on those networks, on that content, for longer than the alternatives, longer than the other types of content that might be more beneficial to us in other ways and feed other priorities better, but not those priorities, not their economic priorities. So this dynamic ties back to issues in the world of social media and the organization of the internet, because these industries are likewise reliant on us spending our time in certain ways. Without our attention, without the ability to feed us ads, Google would not be financially incentivized to provide us with so many tools. Without us spending large quantities of time on Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, Facebook, the way it is structured today anyway, would not have the financial incentive to connect us with each other 
and provide us with the platform that they have built, for better and for worse. Through that lens, then, it makes perfect sense that Netflix, which is relying on us, seeing them as a bare necessity of life, as something we spend a great deal of our time engaging with, it makes sense why they would see the Facebooks and Googles of the world as competition alongside Hulu and HBO, and as perhaps even greater threats in many ways because so many of us spend such huge portions of our day on these sites and in these apps using these services. If we were to spend even more time on Instagram than we already do, that is time that we are probably not spending on Netflix. And inverting that, if we were to spend less time on social networks and other platforms, there's a chance that the time we would have spent watching cat videos and hate-sharing conspiracy theory videos on Facebook could instead be claimed by Netflix, which is serving up a practically endless amount of content to ensure that if we wanted to immerse ourselves more fully in their offerings, we could. It's already there. It's waiting for us. I did an episode about the game Fortnite not long ago, because it has become such a powerhouse in the video game space, but has also in some ways transcended the walls of that industry to start dabbling in other worlds, other industries, in other seemingly disconnected companies' sandboxes. There have been breathless think pieces written about how Fortnite is the future of online currency, how it's redefining the concept of entertainment and content creation, how it's demonstrating what simultaneous events can look like online, having since its inception introduced special events that players can log into to experience together from around the world, including an in-game event involving butterflies that brought in 8.3 million simultaneous players in November of 2018, and another event, which was an in-game music concert, that brought 10.7 million simultaneous players into the game in early February 2019. There has been talk of late that Fortnite might even represent the long-sought online omni-platform, something kind of like the virtual world Oasis, from the book-turned-movie Ready Player One, which slams all intellectual property together into one space, allowing users to jack themselves into a unified virtual experience that then gives them access to all other possible experiences. Now, whether or not this turns out to be the case, and ignoring for the moment all the possible downsides and upsides of such a platform, it makes sense why Netflix might see something like Fortnite as a more direct competitor than HBO and Hulu, doesn't it? Fortnite today is already a form of entertainment that is gobbling up record amounts of hardcore and casual gamers' time on all kinds of devices from all walks of life. And that, again, is time that could be otherwise spent, potentially, watching Netflix content. But allowing that potential future in which Fortnite or some other product becomes a gateway to all other content all other products and platforms, becomes the default starting point for online community, for entertainment, and for media of all shapes and sizes, that would relegate Netflix to the status of just one app among many in a vast app ecosystem that they do not control. They could have millions of hours of entertainment available, but if they don't control the doorway through which people walk to access entertainment more broadly, it could be that they are kept out of the limelight. 
Their assiduously generated and acquired work exposed to fewer and fewer people, and the foot traffic they do receive provided to them by another entity with other relationships and priorities that could change at any moment. We are entering an economic reality then, in which, because of the way technologies have evolved and because of the ways we create, distribute, and consume products and services, we're entering a reality in which all of these entities are competing with all other entities. Because at the end of the day, whatever service or product they're providing, they are all scrambling to get their share of our time and attention, both of which are finite and neither of which can be artificially increased to make more. There have actually been a good number of papers and articles written about the concept of peak attention lately, applying it to right now, the idea being that we are so saturated with viable options that it's no longer a matter of convincing people to fill their time with your company's offerings. It will forevermore be a matter of competing with another company or activity for already claimed time. Because for most of us, most of the time, our days are completely filled. They are utterly saturated. Our attention more likely to be overcommitted than underutilized. The most obvious manifestations of this trend currently involve companies competing with companies, but we are also seeing some early hints of what could come next, which could have the potential to change the tone of this whole conversation. Consider that on average, most of us will spend about a third of our lives asleep. And that's good. That is a healthy amount. About eight hours of each 24-hour period should be spent asleep, based on the best research that we have available on the subject today. Less than that can be harmful, and a lack of regular and sufficient amounts of sleep is associated with all kinds of health problems, both physical and psychological. Consider, though, too, that we are already seeing products and services that are competing for those hours that we might otherwise be spending in dreamland. Now, it's not super overt, generally. It would be a pretty messed up sociopathic marketing effort that straight out told users to stop sleeping so they could consume more of a particular company's goods or services. But covertly, surreptitiously, alongside the more in-your-face, let's-go-drinking-high-end tequila, let's-have-the-nightlife type of ads, we're already seeing this type of marketing effort coming from less obvious places. Think about the implications, for instance, of something being binge-worthy. Think about what that implies. To binge is to consume something excessively in a short period of time. When applied to a TV series, binging usually means that you sit down and watch a substantial portion of a whole season, or a whole season or multiple seasons, of a show all at once. You drop everything, you set aside other priorities and behaviors, including things like sleep, sex, the development of relationships, conversation, work, going to a museum, walking through the park, self-improvement of any kind. You set them all aside so you can see what happens next. So you can plop down in front of this specific type of passive entertainment and soak up potentially as much as 8 to 15 hours of whatever is being served to you. And you'll probably do it gladly, most of the time at least. There might be moments of revulsion or hesitation about it because of what we give up when we binge watch a show. But the public acceptance 
the popularity of binge-watching television has become so common, such a part of pop culture, such an understandable, if probably somewhat unhealthy thing that we sometimes do, that we brag about even, laugh about, commiserate with other over. It's become such an ordinary thing that it's not even really considered to be strange or unusual anymore. Binge-watching first became popular with the advent of TV series being released in their totality on DVDs. But the concept did not become a truly big deal, a part of many people's everyday experience, until 2013, when Netflix began to release complete seasons of its new content simultaneously. So you could actually sit down and watch an entire season of a new TV series, like House of Cards, which wasn't an old show that had already been shown elsewhere, as was the case with DVD box sets. You could watch these new show episodes all at once, all in a row from day one. In 2015, binge watch was the Collins English Dictionary's word of the year, and research conducted in 2016 found that 73% of Americans in all demographics have binge watched some show at some point, and 90% of so-called millennials have binge watched something at some point. 38% of that 90% of millennials also said that they binge watched something every week. Binge-watching defined in this case as watching two to six episodes of a particular series in one sitting. Additionally, and here's where we get back to the explanatory path I was walking a moment ago, Netflix found in research conducted on subscribers in 22 countries that 37% of their customers binge at work. Again, this is using the definition of watching two to six episodes of a show in one sitting. This type of content these sorts of activities are bleeding over into other aspects of our lives. It's no longer just Hulu and HBO that Netflix is competing with. It's our jobs. It's our interpersonal relationships. It's telling that Netflix and chill has come to refer to having sex. But according to some studies, Netflix and the myriad other entertainments that we have available at all times, especially via our smartphones these days, are taking the place of physical and other types of intimacy. In other words, there are correlations between the emergence of cheap and always-on, always-accessible entertainment options and lower rates of sex, especially in young people who are statistically more likely to have higher rates of media consumption and tech use, but increasingly lower rates of sexual encounters. This is something that we've seen in all demographics, but particularly in younger demographics. Now, that's correlation, which does not imply causation. And that's a very broad set of stats from a bunch of different research projects, all of which seem to point at some broad trends, but which should not be taken as gospel. But this is also just one facet of a much larger picture that seems to hint that these types of entertainments and platforms are creeping into other aspects of our lives are claiming time and energy and attention that might otherwise be spent on other things. I think it's possible to look at that potential neutrally and not make any moral claims about it because it's possible that maybe we are better off spending more time playing games with other human beings who live halfway around the world than we are driving around our hometown half drunk because there's nothing else to do 
or that maybe we are binge-watching a favorite show, potentially a thought-provoking, mind-expanding piece of art, rather than just a passive, undifferentiated unit of entertainment. Maybe we're doing this with someone that we like, or even just ourselves, rather than having unsafe sex that neither person is fully psychologically prepared to have. This shift represents a potential change in standards and priorities that is at least partially fueled by economics, by what amounts to chronological land grabs by competing interests, trying to get more of their stuff in our lives so that no one else, none of their competitors, can occupy that space and saturate our attention instead of them. It may be that this turn of events ends up being way more negative than positive, with the aforementioned incentives leading to increasing abuses by these powerful, ubiquitous entities, requiring legal solutions to keep them from using our biological triggers against us, to the point where we are all only sleeping four hours a night and glued to our screens, passively consuming whatever we are fed all day, every day. Or it may be that what we're seeing is the reallocation of resources from one place to another, and that shift not taking us someplace bad, just someplace different. It may be that the competition for our attention that we are seeing happen right now is what will lead to immensely powerful, beneficial experiences that would not have evolved out of the market had those competitive forces not been in place. Maybe Fortnite will become an online omnispace that connects all of us to each other and to experiences that would not have ever come about, lacking the competitive pressures from other economic attention-grabbing gorillas like Facebook and Netflix. Maybe Netflix will fund incredible historical works of culture that change countless lives for the better, their incentive for doing so measured in dollars and cents but the impact being measured in happiness and inspiration for millions of people. What's important here is not passing judgment and finding bad guys. It's being aware of the levers that are being pulled, the resources being fought over, and the impact these struggles between titans can have on those of us down here on the ground. The tricks and tools and rewards and resources being leveraged here can manipulate us into constant distraction can impact our relationships with ourselves and with each other, and can amplify issues inherent in surveillance capitalism, big data, and the metrics that we use to measure things, the funding and spreading of art and culture and the nature of abundance versus scarcity. The consequences can be negative or positive, and often negative for some and positive for others, but can also be neutral in a latent way, their moral rightness or wrongness entirely dependent on how we respond to them how we view this struggle and what spins out of this competition, and how we decide to act or not to act once we begin to understand more fully what exactly is happening here. Now, lest you think I was judging anybody while speaking about the topic of today's show, the 
TV show that I would like to recommend today is one that I binge-watched over the course of a couple of days just recently. It is called The Umbrella Academy, and it can be found on Netflix. The Umbrella Academy is one of my favorite sub-genres of superhero movies. It is the dark, more adult-oriented comic book movie. The most popular and well-known of this genre, I would argue, is probably The Watchmen, which was just a really, really amazing graphic novel turned into a pretty good I thought, at least, film. I think opinions definitely vary on that. The Umbrella Academy, though, has the same vibe, but is a little bit more palatable without losing what makes it special. And there's a whimsy to it. There's a whole lot of very, very dark humor in it. And it takes the superhero genre and mixes it with some really deep and compelling concepts, ranging from time travel to some of the things that we celebrate about eccentrics and capitalism. The story revolves around an eccentric, brilliant billionaire who adopts a bunch of children who were born under unusual circumstances and then raises them as a team of crime-fighting superheroes. But in doing so, there was also a great deal of abuse by a lot of different definitions for the term abuse that took place. And these characters then grew up into people who are still remarkable in a whole lot of ways, but also devastated and warped in a whole lot of ways as a consequence of that upbringing and their history. So if you are into whimsical, unusual superhero stories, if you are into a darker take on that type of genre, something that is a little less uplifting typically, but a whole lot more bizarre and crazy and fun, or if you are just keen to see what a graphic novel looks like when portrayed on screen, and I think they did a pretty good job of taking the vibe of this type of graphic novel and applying it to screen in this show, it is worth checking out The Umbrella Academy, which is available on Netflix. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com, and you can find my new project and advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.